Well, it's good to see you guys this morning. Um, Welcome to the Austin Stone. If this is your very first time, we're glad you're here. Whether you're a college student um, or a new family here that's checking us out, we are so excited that you've joined us this morning. We hope that this is the beginning of one of the most significant times of spiritual growth in your entire life. And so we're so glad you're here. I also want to say hi to all the campuses uh, that are meeting together uh, this morning all across the city of Austin, our West Campus, our South Campus, our St. John's Campus. We're so glad that you guys are joining us right now. And so we uh, want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. We're continuing our series together that we're calling Far More. We're basing it off of this um, group of verses in Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians uh, 3, 20 and 21. Let me read it to you real quickly. It says this in verse 20. It says, now to him, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Now, as we've been preparing for this series, and we've been preparing for it for really a long time, about a year, um, we came across a video that we made at our 10-year anniversary. Uh, We've been going as a church for 12 years now. On our 10-year anniversary, we, we made a video, and We watched it, just checking it out, as we were looking for uh, videos that we could show during the series, and we realized that at the 10-year mark, we had captured a video that really captures the heart of what this church is all about. It's really what the series is all about. And then throughout this little four-minute video that goes quickly, it really captures the topic of what we're addressing today. So we thought, man, we're just going to show it to you guys. So check this out. It's four minutes. Watch this. Well, the history of the Austin Stone really started out with a vision. We just asked uh, the question, could we start a church? Could we start a community of faith where Jesus was exalted, where he's the star of the church, where he's worshipped, where he's known? And could, through that, could God do something special in the city of Austin? Austin Stone began in an apartment complex in the University of Texas with a core group of about 15 people. And we just met together and we, we prayed together. We sought the face of the Lord and just began to beg Him and ask Him to do something awesome through us. We said, Lord, would you do something that's so big, that's so beyond our wildest imagination, that when we look back at it, we can say, man didn't do this, a pastor didn't do this, a worship leader didn't do this. Lord, the only explanation is that you did it. So looking back over the last 10 years of the Austin Sun, I can say with absolute sincerity and honesty that I believe God has done something in this city that's bigger than our wildest imagination. For whatever reason, he took a bunch of ragtag sinners, messed up, flawed people, and has let us be a part of the greatest story in history, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I never could have imagined that there would be literally hundreds of people from the Austin Stone in dozens of countries around the world proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. I never could have dreamed for that. 
it was exceedingly and abundantly more than I could ask of for the Lord. The sun literally never sets on the ministry of the Austin Stone Community Church for the name of Jesus Christ. The For the City Center is being used for the the glory of God, not just for a, a bunch of Christians, but for people of the city of Austin. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people of all walks of life are being ministered to every day through that. I never could imagine that in my wildest dreams. Missional communities, to see that thousands of people are uh, engaging in the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the city of Austin, in their workplaces, in their neighborhoods, uh, in the place that they, they gather together just to have fun. We're seeing the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed through everyday people, not just through pastors, not through ministers, but through everyday people that love Jesus. Seeing the way that God's moved through that is unbelievable. I have no other explanation for why he's doing what he's doing other than just his grace and his love for us. And what an amazing privilege it is to be a part of God moving in our lifetime. You know, people ask me all the time, how has the vision of the Austin Stone changed over the last 10 years? And the answer to that question is it hasn't at all. The goal and the purpose and the passion and the vision of this church is the same today as it was 10 years ago. And it's simply this that we want to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, He's our Savior, He's our God. And we want to be a church that preaches the Word of God, that worships Him, and that sees His name and His glory exalted in the city of Austin. I pray that He would continue to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask for or think of for His glory and for His name. stuff and that good stuff yeah you can clap God's been good to us I don't know if you caught it at the beginning of it but we at the very beginning of our church we prayed a prayer me and and uh, and my wife and our and our 15 college kids that started this church we prayed that God would do something so significant in our time that when we look back on it we can't attribute it to anything other than the movement of God himself, that we couldn't credit some man or some worship leader or some pastor or some scheme of man. And the the thing that's awesome and amazing and crazy is that God has answered that prayer. He's answered that prayer. And through the weeks to come, we're going to talk about a lot of the ways he's answered that prayer. But, But really what this series is all about is saying, God, you have been faithful to answer the prayer of a desperate church planner and a bunch of college kids. You've been faithful to answer that prayer. In the last 12 years. And so God, would you be faithful to answer it again in the years to come? Now last week, if you missed it, one of the things that we looked at and we talked about this biblically is that when God does begin to answer that prayer, when God does begin to move, when God begins to move powerfully either in an individual or a group of people, one of the things we talked about is that Satan doesn't like it. Satan likes to stop powerful movements of God, or at least try to stop powerful movements of God. And we look biblically at how Jesus talked about, really, there's two primary ways 
that, that Satan tries to go about attacking someone who, or rather a church or a group of people or an individual that God is moving in power in. And the first is through persecution. If God's moving powerfully in your life, or if he's moving powerfully in a church, he will bring persecution into your life. He will try to attack you and get you to the place where you're like, you know what, I didn't sign up for this, I'm out. But there's another way if that doesn't work. If that doesn't work, that the enemy will come and try to attack your life if God's using you in power, and it's sneakier than that. And that's that if he can't take you out by attacking you, he will try to take you out in your apathy or through your complacency in your walk with Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus said in, uh, I believe it's Luke chapter 8. Don't turn there. Luke chapter 8, verse 14. Jesus was talking about that specific attack of the enemy in our lives, and I'll read it to you. Jesus says, as for what fell among the thorns, and he's telling a parable here, but he's talking about the attack of Satan. He says, as what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, he's talking about individuals who hear the word of God, but as they go on their way, they are choked, they're choked, slow death, they're choked by the cares of this world, by the deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of life, and they prove unfruitful. All right, now I want you to hear me really carefully here what I'm about to say. What Jesus just, just said to us is this, is that Satan doesn't have to bring on this full-on attack into our lives in order to render us ineffective for the kingdom of God. He didn't have to do that, all right? What Jesus is saying is that all Satan has to do is get your eye's attention and your heart's affection away from Jesus and on to the cares of this world, and then he, that will just bring about a spiritual ineffectiveness in your life. And we talked about that, saw a powerful illustration of that last week in the story of David, King David, in the Old Testament. You remember <coughs> King David uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, it absolutely ruined his life. Now, what I want to do, I want to reread to you the verses um, the scripture talks about in 2 Samuel that happened right before he commits adultery with Bathsheba and ruins his life in 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. Pay attention to what David's doing right before this, one of his greatest sins in his life. In verse, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, and his servants with him, and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabab, but David, but David remained in Jerusalem. And it happened. This happened, this adultery with Bathsheba, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And you know the rest of the story. David commits adultery with this woman and it absolutely ruins his entire life. And what we learned, what we talked about last week, is that Satan didn't take David out when he was a little kid on the battlefield with Goliath. Satan didn't take David out when he was older and King Saul was trying to kill him over and over again. We talked about last week that Satan took David out on the couch. Late one afternoon, when he was bored out of his mind, when he should have been on the battlefield... But instead, he was on the couch, resting on the past victories that God had brought into his life. Here's the thing. Make no mistake. If Satan cannot take you out and render you ineffective by a full frontal attack in your life, he will try to render you ineffective through apathy and complacency. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to spend the rest of our time today, and here's what I'm going to talk about. I want you to hear this. I want to talk about the one thing 
The one thing more than any other thing that you as a person and that we as a church must never allow the enemy to take our eyes' attention and our heart's affection away from. And and I'm going to say it, and it's going to sound so obvious, and it's going to sound so simple. But what I'm seeing, uh, church, is that for a lot of people and for a lot of churches, it's not obvious and it's not simple, but here it is. If we want to see God continue, if we want to see God to continue to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ask or think of, we can never allow, we can never allow by his grace the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of riches or the pleasures of this life to draw us away from Jesus as our first love. All right, now that sounds incredibly simple, but it's not. And back in the day when we started this church, that was back in the time when everybody, all churches and businesses, everybody was doing a mission statement back in the day. And so we thought, well, everybody's doing a mission statement. We need to have a mission statement as a church. And so we got together, we formed a mission statement. And this is it. This is the heart of it. I'm going I'm to read it to you. It was our mission statement then, and it still is today. But it's this. It's, we are a New Testament church. And all the world that means is that we founded the church on the principles of Acts chapter 2, if you want to go read it. Doesn't mean we don't care about the Old Testament, just means we founded it on Acts 2. We're a New Testament church. Now watch this. It says existing. We exist for, here's why we're here. We exist for the supremacy, means to make something tops or highest, for the supremacy of the name and the purpose of Jesus Christ. Okay, I don't know if that's, if you knew that that's what we thought we were here for, but that's it. We're a New Testament church, and we exist for the supremacy of the name and the purpose of Jesus Christ. And you may be saying, well, Matt, isn't isn't that the purpose of every church? Wouldn't everybody say that that was the purpose of the church? And I would tell you that, yes, probably for many churches it is. But unfortunately, for many churches, it is not. And although they would never admit it, or they would never come out and say it in reality... I think you can make a pretty good case that many churches' unsaid mission statement looks more like this. That we're a modern American church and we exist for the supremacy of the name and the purpose of our church. I think there's a lot of churches, they'd never admit it, but their unsaid mission statement might be something like we're a modern American church and we exist for the supremacy of the name and the purpose of our senior pastor. And that's become to be true because for so many churches, what I'm seeing somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, worshiping and loving and pursuing and serving and obeying Jesus gets lost in the pursuit of all this other stuff. Now, we are not perfect in this by any stretch of the imagination. We're humans and we're sinners just like everybody else. But here's the thing. As you saw in the video, I hope you caught it that from the very beginning of this church, we have been fighting tooth and nail to make Jesus the center and the aim and the goal and the star and the point of everything we do as a church. Now, there's a couple of things that in the early days of the church really influenced us towards being a Christ-centered congregation, a Christ-centered church, two things. Number one was, believe it or not, was just a sermon that I heard back in the 1990s by John Piper, back when I was a young dude, back in the 1990s, and it blew my mind. And what the sermon was about, what the sermon was about was about the God-centered nature of God. 
It was about the God-centered nature of God. Now, now you might be thinking, well, Matt, what in the world does that mean, that God is God-centered? Well, here's what it means. When I grew up, and I grew up in church, I was taught that God loved me. I was taught that God loved me. I I was taught that God died on a cross for me. My pastor would say things like, if you were the only person in the world and you sinned, God would have come to this earth and he would have died on a cross for your sins. Now, here's what I want you to hear. All that that I said is absolutely 100% true, okay? God absolutely does love you. He adores you. He's crazy about you. God did die on a cross for your, your sin. If you were the only person God created and you sinned, Jesus would have come. He would have died on a cross for you. But here's the point, and, and, and the problem with just that is it's only about half the biblical story. It's only half the biblical story. And, and, and by only telling me when I was a child half of the biblical story, I was subtly taught, hear this, I was subtly taught that I am the center of this whole redemption story. It subtly taught me, uh, when those phrases were used in isolation, it, it subtly taught me that Christianity and the cross and God are primarily about me. All right, now here's the thing. And what, what John Piper showed biblically in this sermon I'm about to show you, and it, again, it just blew my mind when I saw it because I'm like, man, it's right there. I've never seen it, is that God is not man-centered. God is God-centered. I'm going to say that again. God is, God, not, God is not man-centered. God is God-centered. Okay, for God, for God to be man-centered would make him an idolater. <laughs> For God to be centered and focused and pointing us to any other thing other than himself would make him idolater. He is the greatest being that has ever lived. Okay, and so often in the Bible, over actually not often, it's all the time, over and over and over again, you'll see God saying these things. He does them for us. He does all these amazing things for us. And at the end of it, he'll say, for my name's sake. For my name's sake. Go do a word study in your quiet time this week on the phrase, for my name's sake or for his name's sake, or for his holy name. Over and over and over and over again in the scripture, you see God will do this thing, and that at first glance, it looks like we're kind of the center of it, we're the purpose of it, but at the end of it, he'll say, I did all that for my name's sake. I'll show you a couple of examples. Don't turn there, just watch. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 20, watch this. It says, when they came to the nations, where they, where they went, they profaned my holy name. Because it was said of them, these are the people of God, yet they have come out of his land. But, verse 21, he says, but I had, this is God speaking, he says, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations where they went. Now watch what he says in verse 22. God's about to do something. He says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. Now, when you hear God say that, when you hear God say, you guys have messed up, you've profaned my holy name, I'm about to act. What do you think God's going to say in the Old Testament? You would expect God, you'd expect God right here, the thing that he's about to do, he's about to go Old Testament, old school style on those people, right? Hail, fire, and brimstone, floods, pillars of fire, salt. He's about to go old school God on them right there. 
you've profaned my holy name. I care about my holy name. I'm not going to act for you. I'm going to act for my holy name. Now, I want you to watch what God says he's going to do for his sake and for, the name, for his holy name. In verse 24, he says this. He says, for I will take you among the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What's God talking about that he's going to do? He's talking about our salvation. God says, I'm going to make you clean. I'm going to make you clean. I'm going to clean you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I'm going to gather you from all the nations. I'm going to bring you to myself. And not only that, but I'm going to put my spirit in you. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you a new heart. Now, why did God say he's going to do all that? He says, Israel, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm doing it. He says, but for my holy name. Psalms 23.3. In Psalms 23.3, King David says it. It says, he restores my soul. God, God's the one that restores my soul. He says this, he guides me in the path of righteousness. And if you were just stop right there, you'd go, well, I'm the center of that. God restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. But watch how he ends it. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. In 1 John 2.12, John writes, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you. And if you start it right there, sounds very man-centered. Hey, church, little children, I want you to know God has forgiven your sins. But he says, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Jesus himself, Jesus himself talks about the God-centered nature of God in John chapter 13. And this is, um, I'm writing a commentary on the gospel of John, and I was studying it this summer, and it's for my dissertation, by the way, not that you care. Anyway, just why I'm doing that. But I, I got to John 13. I saw something I've never seen before. He's in the upper room. He's going to die on the cross the next day. He's got the disciples. They do the Lord's Supper. They go that. And in his language, when Judas is in the room, is very, very different than his language once Judas leaves the room. And so Judas the betrayer, Jesus calls him out, Judas gets up and he leaves, and it's like at that point, he's got all the true disciples in the room with him, and Jesus begins to speak after Judas leaves, and I want you to watch the first thing that comes out of his mouth once uh, the the, the non-disciple leaves the room. He begins to talk about the cross immediately, first thing out of his mouth. And when Judas leaves, he begins to talk about the cross. The first thing his mouth, out of his mouth is not, hey, true disciples, get ready because I'm about to die on a cross and forgive you of your, of your sins. That's not what he says. Look at what he says, John 13, 30. It says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, that's Judas, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, watch what he says, first thing out of his mouth, talking about the cross. He says, now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. 
If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth as he prepares the disciples for the cross, he's like, get ready, boys, because God is about to be glorified. And church, I, that's just like four examples out of 100, 150, probably more. I could go on and on and on and on, but are you seeing it? The cross was not primarily about you or me. The cross was primarily about glorifying God. And a great example of how we've missed this as a culture and Christianity has become so human-centric. It was a, a song that became number one on the Christian contemporary charts several years ago and stayed number one on the charts for years and years. And for those of you who've been around the stone um, a while have heard me talk about this before because I've railed on this song before, um, but it's a great example of how we miss this as a church. And, and, and kind of the, um, the haymaker of the line is in the chorus, and, and it's talking about the cross, and the line says this. It says, like a rose trampled on the ground, he took the fall, Jesus, he took the fall, and he thought of me above all, above all. Uh, like a rose trampled on the ground, he took the fall and he thought of me above all. Now that rhymes. And it's really, really singable. And it sounds really pretty. But it's stone cold wrong. It's wrong. At the cross, church, he was thinking of you. He was. He absolutely was. He was absolutely dying for your sins. But he was not thinking above you, above all, above all, above all, he was glorifying and magnifying and pointing us to our heavenly father. And again, when you hear that kind of for the first time, you go, ah, that sounds kind of weird and it's kind of hard to hear. But here's the thing, at the end of the day, I want you to know that God being God-centered, that God being God-focused is the single most loving thing God could ever do for us. Why? Because God is the greatest being in the universe. God is the most loving being in the universe. He's the most holy being in the universe. Therefore, the most loving thing God could ever do is not point all of this to us, but point all of this to him. And it's kind of like, I mean, we get this instinctively. We just don't realize it. It's kind of like giving your kids, your children, gifts at Christmas. For those of you that don't have children, when your parents gave you a gift at Christmas. When you give your child a gift at Christmas or any other time, the primary reason for you giving them a gift is not just for them to have that gift. Okay, maybe they want... Maybe they want a new iPhone or whatever, and you give them a new iPhone. The, the primary gift, uh, the primary thing and reason and, and, and underlying factor for why you gave them that is not so they can have the gift. The primary reason you give your children's gifts is so that they could know and experience the love of the Father who gave them the gift. That's why you do it, and you know that in your heart. The reason you give your children a gift is so they can know and feel and experience the tangible love of the Father to give them. And God is absolutely no different. Our Heavenly Father is the exact same way. He didn't give you the gift of salvation just so you could have the gift of salvation. Even though the gift of salvation is awesome. 
He gave us the gift of salvation so that we could know and that we could experience the Father who gave us the gift. The greatest gift that God gives us is Himself. And we have tried, we have tried with all of our hearts and the way that we've built this church to structure and build this church in such a way that we are not the center of it, but that Jesus is. That we're not the center of it, but Jesus is. A couple of tangible examples just uh, uh, that we've tried to do this over the years. One is, just personally, every single time when I'm preparing a sermon, every single time, I pray the same prayer. And every single time when I'm walking up these stairs right here, I pray the same exact prayer, and I've done it my entire ministry, which is almost 20 years, um, through youth ministry and through this church. I pray this prayer. I pray, Lord, Jesus, would your name be exalted above my name? I pray it every time. Lord, would your name be exalted above my name? I pray, Lord, would your name be exalted above the name of this church? When I sit down at my desk and I start to prepare a message, that's the first thing I pray. The first thing I pray is I'm walking across that little 12-yard stretch right there. Jesus, would your name be exalted above my name and the name of the church? And the reason that I do that is because my greatest desire for you is for not for you to walk out <coughs> these doors talking about how great the music is. I don't want you talking about how great the preaching was. I, I, my heart, my passion our heart, our passion is for you to walk out of these doors talking about how great Jesus is. And that's why we do it. I'll tell you something else. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but have you ever noticed that we never advertise who's leading worship or preaching? Have you ever noticed that? Almost never. Almost never do we say, hey, here's who's going to be here. And there's a, there's a very specific reason we do that. It's been that way from the very beginning. The principle is we wanted kind of Jesus to be the person that you came to church for. I know that's nuts, but that's kind of what we wanted. And that was hard back in the day. And some of y'all don't know this, but um, the guy that started the church with us is arguably the most famous worship leader in the history of Jesusdom. I mean, it's Chris Tomlin started this church with us and he's the man and if you don't listen to contemporary Christian music he's the man and and he started the church with us was with us five years um, and then left to go to Atlanta and and I'm telling you guys as a young church planner when nobody was coming to the church it was so tempting for for me and for our team to get his ugly mug up on a billboard somewhere in the middle of downtown Austin and and just get on the radio and blast they were Chris Tomlin he's coming right and but we thought you know what we don't want to do that we don't want to build it on that we don't want to build on it, so we never advertised when he was going to be here. And people used to get mad at us. And people would call us all the time. We'd get like 20, 30 phone calls a week at least. People asking us, is Chris Tomlin coming, is going to be there this week? And it used to break my heart because I knew when that person was calling, they were, they were deciding whether or not they were going to come to church based on whether or not an individual guy was going to be there or not. That was back when I used to answer the phones. And I was answering the phone. And uh, I just was fed up with it. Y'all ever had a time where you just, y'all ever had a time where you just sinned? Y'all ever done something like that? <laughs> I'm going to tell you about one of my times. And I was, I was answering the phone. So don't leave the church over this. I was young, all right? And so, so this guy calls and, and uh, he, sure enough, 
he says, hey, um, and it would start about Friday afternoon, about 3 o'clock. And sure enough, it's about Friday afternoon, about 3 o'clock. Hey, man, I'm just wondering, is Chris Tomlin leading worship at church this week? And I said, you know what? I said, you know what? He's not leading worship this week. He's not going to be here. But I tell you, who is going to be here? Jesus is going to be here. So you ought to come to church and meet him. <laughs> but I swear, that's what I did. I was like, Lord, I apologize for that. That guy's probably an atheist now. He's like, I hate the church because of Matt Carter. But here's the thing. We, we do that because we want people to come to church. I know this sounds so easy, but it's, it's harder than you think. We want people to come to church for Jesus. We want them to come to church for him. We want them to come to church because they're encountering Jesus. He's a lot better than me. He's a lot better than Chris Tom. He's a lot better than Aaron Ivey. He's a lot better than any pastor or, you know, that you like. Or, and so that's why we do that. Here, here's another thing. Have you ever noticed that we have like 10 preachers at the Austin Stone? You ever notice that? Very intentional with that. Uh, very intentional from the very beginning about that. And the reason that we do that, the reason that, that was, that's a fundamental principle of the Austin Stone is because um, we wanted you to be a people that don't follow a messenger. You follow the message. We wanted you to be a people that don't necessarily follow a messenger, but you follow the messenger or the message. And here's the thing. Messengers come and go. Messengers come and go. Messengers die. Messengers sin. Messengers fail. But the message never fails. And the message is Jesus. And so we want you to be a people that it doesn't matter who the guy is up on the stage. Because no matter the guy up on the stage that's different, the same guy's in the room who is Jesus. And we want you following him. And that's why we do this. There's a very specific reason that we do it. And in church, if we ever get to the place, hear this, if we ever get to the place where we stop doing that, if Jesus stops being the goal, if Jesus stops being the star, if Jesus stops being the center, I'm telling you, God will not move in power in our church. He won't do it. And I want to show you biblically what I'm talking about very fast. We're all actually almost done here. Revelation 2. Go ahead and turn there if you want to. If you've got a Bible or whatever, we're almost done. I'm, I'm literally on the, second, I'm the last page of my notes here. Revelation 2. Just exposit this really quickly. I want to show you biblically how if Jesus is in the center, we're in trouble. It's over. Revelation 2. Revelation 2.1. one. We'll show you how Jesus says what happens to a church that walks away from Jesus. Okay? In verse 1, and I'm in New American Standard here. He says, to the angel, this is Jesus speaking, he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? That word angel means messenger. And so he's probably talking to the, not actually an angel there, but the messenger, same Greek word. He's probably talking to the pastor the elders he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus write I'm the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand Jesus is speaking he says I'm the one that holds the seven stars in the right hand and I have absolutely no idea what that means but I do know what the next line means he says I'm the one I'm the one Jesus says who walks among the seven golden lampstands the seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches in the New Testament times right there. He, Jesus said, I'm the one who walks among the churches. He says, I love that. I'm the one that walks among the churches. 
And then Jesus is speaking specifically to the church in Ephesus, and he's going to start telling them the things they're doing well. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. You put them to the test, those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Jesus says two things about the church in Ephesus that are really, really good. He says, one, you guys are standing for sound doctrine. You guys are standing for sound doctrine. You're not putting up with false teachers. You're not putting up with all the drivel that's being spouted out there. You are standing up for theology. You're standing up for what is right. And Jesus said, I love that about your church. And he goes on and then and he says in verse 3, he says, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. That word perseverance and enduring, it, it carries with it the idea of a, of a woman back in the day carrying a water pot on her head, that there's this weight that she's carrying on her head, but yet she moves forward. And Jesus says, that's what I see in your church. You have endured, you've got this weight on you, but you've moved forward for my name's sake. And church, I don't know about you, but that sounds like the kind of church I would want to be a part of. Sounds like the kind of church that I'd want to pastor. The kind of church that stands up for Jesus and what's right for his name and endures under trials. But then Jesus drops a bomb on him in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. He said, somewhere along the way in your ministry, somewhere along the way in your pursuit of doctrine, somewhere along the way in your pursuit of the mission of God, Jesus said, you fell out of love with me. And the next verse Verse five is haunting to me. Because he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Jesus just said, that's awesome that you're doing all this stuff, but unless you make me your first love. She said, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. And what that means, she's saying, I'm no longer going to be the one walking among your church. So in a nutshell, here's what happened at the church in Ephesus. They were doing all this stuff for Jesus, but somewhere in the process, they fell out of love with Jesus. And that is the single greatest danger we face as a church. I'm telling you, God has done far more than I could have asked for or thought of. But if somewhere along the way, Jesus quits being the center, Jesus quits being the star, Jesus quits being our first love, I promise you the Lord will remove his lampstand from this church. And all we'll have to talk about is how God, or rather how this used to be a church that God used to move in. It's the greatest danger we face. And here's the thing, and I want you to hear this, almost done. We will never be a church. We will never be a God-centered church. We will never be a Christ-centered church until we are full of Christ-centered people. We'll never be a church that has Jesus as their first love until we are a church full of people that has Jesus 
as their first love. And there's nothing in the world that Satan wants more for you. There's nothing in the world that Satan wants more for you than for you to walk away from Jesus as your first love. And I could ask you, I guarantee you, there's a ton of believers in this room right now, and I could ask you, do you love Jesus? And your answer would be absolutely yes, I love Jesus. But somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way for so many of us in this room, a relationship that you're in, your children, your job, your money, some hobby, exercise, your body, food, sex, Netflix, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of this life has slowly, slowly choked your mind's attention and your heart's affection away from Jesus and the call of Jesus, the call of Jesus and the warning of Revelation 2 is that you need to come back to him as your first love. And I'll end this sermon with this. Halim shared something with me last week about the story of David and, and his adultery with Bathsheba that I had never thought about before and never realized before. And that in Psalms 51, we actually get to see, in Psalm 51, we actually get to see David's prayer of repentance after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. We get to hear and we get to see his prayer of repentance. And what's fascinating about David's prayer of repentance, what's fascinating about it to me after he he commits adultery is when he prays and begins to repent, when he prays to the Lord, he never specifically asks God to forgive him for the sin of adultery. Did you know that? He never comes out and says, God, would you forgive me for my lust? He never says, God, would you forgive me for committing adultery with this woman? I want you to watch what David asked for. Don't turn there. Just read this. and Let this hit your heart today. In Psalm 51.10, David's prayer of repentance. In verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He says, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, here's what I need more than anything else in the midst of my life falling apart in my sin and me walking away from you. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know why David prayed that prayer? Because first and foremost, David didn't have an adultery problem. David had a heart problem. First and foremost, David didn't have a lust problem. David had a worship problem. And so when he's praying for when he's praying for forgiveness, when he was praying, he's not saying, God, make me stop lusting after women. He says, God, I need your presence. I need you to return to me the joy I once had in my salvation. And God, along the way, would you just give me a new heart? Because that's what I need more than anything else. Some of you are in sin today. You're mired in it. 
you're stuck in it, and I'm telling you, the way out of it, the solution is not praying that you'd stop the sin. The solution is praying that God would give you a new heart. And then all that rest of that stuff will come. And I told you last week that unashamedly throughout the course of this series, we're going to ask everybody in the sound of my voice, we're going to ask everybody in this church to take one step from wherever they are in your involvement, in your involvement in the mission of God through the thing that God created to accomplish the mission of God, and that is the church. We're going to unashamedly ask you to take one step in your involvement in the mission of God through the church. And we're going to ask you unashamedly to take one step from wherever you are in your investment. And your investment in your prayers. We're talking about prayer next week. I can't wait. We're going to ask you to invest more of your finances that God has given you for the glory of God. We're going to ask you to invest more of your time, more of your gifts, more of your heart, more of your ownership, more of your passion. But I'm going to end the sermon today with this statement. There is something that God wants before he wants your involvement and there's something God wants before he wants your investment. And that is your heart. That's what he wants today, I promise you that. And so wherever you are today, take that step and give him your heart. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and and just close your eyes, I want to invite you just to do business with the Lord today. Maybe it's been a long time since you've just said, Lord, here's here's my heart. Come back to your first love. Ask him to restore to you the joy of your salvation. To renew a right spirit in you. Take away the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh like he said he was going to back in Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Jesus, I pray your name would be exalted above my name. I pray your name would be exalted above the name of this church. Father, to you be the glory in the church through Jesus Christ now and through all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.